Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today in the podcast, we're going to look at those seven battleground states that are going to decide who the next president of the United States is. Our guest is Justin Myers. He's CEO of something called For Our Future. That's a super PAC that's funded by organized labor, Tom Steyer's next gen organization, and they're planning to spend $80 million in those seven states. So he's got kind of a ground level view about what's going on there. We're going to talk to him about what issues people care about there. What do they think about Trump? Can he win? And what effect will the impeachment trial have, if any, on what they're thinking? And here's my conversation with Justin Myers. Justin Myers, welcome to It's All Political. Welcome to the city of St. Francis as Speaker Pelosi calls it. Thank you, Joe. Um, so your organization for our future is planning to spend $80 million in these key battlegrounds of, uh, in 2020. We're talking states like the uh, states formerly known as the Democratic Blue Wall, <laughs> Michigan, Wisconsin, and our native, our shared native state of Pennsylvania. That's right. You're from Philly. We'll, we'll let that go. <laughs> and I'm from Pittsburgh, of course, <laughs> along with uh, Ohio, uh, Virginia, Florida, Nevada. Correct. Now, you've had, you had 1.1 million face-to-face conversations with voters in those places in 2018. Yeah. And have had continued organizing since then. Yes. Okay. So the the question that everybody wants to know, especially here among uh, uh, Democrats in California, is you see these these folks all the time. What are the chances President Trump is going to win again? So I I think that 2016 came as a shock to most of us. Um, You know, those folks that um, work in politics as a profession, I think all bet on Hillary Clinton. Um, I think even the other side would say they did not expect for for Trump to become president. With that being said, um, you know, when when you expect a winner, sometimes you don't do everything that you need to do to win. Uh, I'm a firm believer that you always want to run scared, meaning you want to run as if you were down um, by by 20 points, because I think that's when you get the best output from your organization and or candidate. Um, so I think things on the ground are vastly different from 2016. Uh, and I think you don't have to look any further than what happened in 2017 to tell to tell us why it's different. Um, You know, in 2017, the resistance movement came about. We're sitting here in in San Francisco where I know the marches uh, were were attended by thousands and thousands of people. Yes, this is the cradle of resistance. That's right. Um, And, you, you know, the election of Trump created um, activism at a peak level like I have never seen during my lifetime. And that coupled um, with 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 other movements, um, you know, the gun violence prevention movement, um, Black Lives Matter, all of these different movements that have sprouted up over time have culminated in a, in a level of activism that, again, that I haven't seen during my lifetime. So on the ground now, I think you have that level of activism, people who were not involved in the political system before actually getting engaged. But you also have political professionals like myself, making sure we are truly prepared for this cycle, that we're collaborating with the folks that we can actually talk to to make sure that we are covering the turf that we should and putting putting plans forth that are going to help us win. 
But like, will Trump win again? What are the chances? Can my, he win, my, my can he he win no. again? No, you don't he's think not. So. I don't. I don't think he can. I think if you look at what happened in 2018, um, with the with Democrats taking back the House, um, with us making strides in state legislatures around the country, us taking back governors' mansions around the country, um, you know, even in Virginia, we just took uh, both houses of the state ledge. We are building a coalition that I think is going to lead us to victory in 2020. Um, whether it's young people, uh, people of color, uh, college-educated women, um, suburban moms. Uh, I think that they, in 2018, sent a strong message to the White House that they were tired of, of going through um, this, this whirlwind day-to-day um, and not actually seeing anything that is helping them, uh, their bottom line, and their lives. People are fed up. You, you told me earlier that... Uh... Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan is pretty much the ballgame. Um, why do voters there still support the president? I mean, he, the president talks about the economy is is doing well. And, and if you have money, if you have a, if half of Americans who have uh, stock investments and such, it, it's it's doing better. But the real wages have only gone up 1%. Why do folks there still like the president? So I'm, I, I think if you looked at any poll in any of those states, the, the la- latest like, polls that I've seen, the president is dramatically underwater. Uh, the majority of people, in fact, do not like him. Um, the people that we speak to every day, in fact, are telling us that the economy is not helping them. Right. Um, if we take southwestern Pennsylvania, for instance, Trump made a promise that the steel workers there would reap the benefits of the tariffs that he's put in place. Mm-hmm. But who's actually reaping the benefits? It's not the steel workers themselves, right? It's not the rank and file workers um, that that are 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 leading middle class households. It's the owners of the steel mills, right? Um, I think you can go to places like Wisconsin and Michigan and talk to any worker and ask them, "Has this economy truly benefited you?" And they're going to say no because healthcare is going up, childcare is going up. Roads and bridges in places like Michigan are decrepit. They're not mm. fixed. Right. Prescription drugs. Trump put, said that he would put something forward to fix that issue. Hasn't done it. There are a lot of broken promises that he's made to individuals, to, to voters. And I think that's going to come back to haunt him. And I'm, that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful about 2020. What, a lot of the things that are talked about in the national media in particular, or the Beltway media, uh, are not the issues that people are talking about at the door. What what are people telling you at the door and those and those seven battleground states that we're not hearing talked about uh, it's, every day in the news? It's amazing. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm very proud of is that when we start a conversation at the door, we don't ask a person about which candidate they're going to support. Instead, we ask them, what issue do you want to see addressed in your city hall, in your state capitol, or in D.C.? And we were astounded by some of the answers that we got back. To your point, they were not the national issues that the smart people in D.C. always think are the issues that people care about. In Michigan, it was things like auto insurance. In Pennsylvania, it was what, more... What, what, stop. What, what about auto insurance? Uh, Detroit has doubled the national premium. Um, we have a 28-year-old statewide field director um, uh, in Michigan that pays $250 a month for his auto insurance. Oh, my God. Right. So what happens as a result is that a lot of people don't even register their cars in Detroit. They register them in the suburbs. Wow. Yeah. Uh, in places like Pennsylvania, more school funding. Um, that is a huge issue. In places like Delaware County, which, by the way, um, just last year, 
Democrats took control of the county legislature, I think, for the first time since the Civil War. Um, You know, so yes, in places like Delaware County, schools are literally crumbling, right? Um, People want help for the public school system there. Um, You know, it's, it's, pocketbook issues tend to dominate the day. And I do think that roads and bridges is in fact uh, a pocketbook issue. That's something that's very um, uh, top of mind to voters in Michigan. Um, You know, it's usually just pocketbook issues. It's healthcare. uh, It is more jobs. It's local blight. um, You'll hear about opioid abuse in places like Philadelphia. um, Things that we often miss when we're trying to crash, craft these national messages that are usually for persuasion audiences. But even there, I think that we're, we're, we're missing something. As we're recording this, the impeachment trial continues in the Senate. Is that come up at the door? And, and, and how do you foresee that resonating uh, through the campaign, if at all? You know, it's it. We have heard it more, but is it a top five issue? Not, not to the voters that we're talking about. Mm. And uh, the reason I say that and the reason why I think it's not for the most part, I, I, the activist base, of course, is going to talk about impeachment. But I think once you get to people that don't vote often, people that aren't watching the news constantly, that aren't reading a newspaper on the daily basis, um, people that frankly are just worried about putting food on their table and taking care of their children and their spouses and their family, they're not paying attention to what's happening in D.C., Right. That's not the top of mind for many of them. What you will actually hear is that it doesn't matter who's in the White House because my life is still going to be the same. Mm. And that's where I think us connecting with these voters on issues makes a difference, mm. because then you're actually speaking to what they care about rather than some national message that is missing them completely. And so it doesn't there's not really a persuasion, any kind of persuasion that you're that may come out of this trial, you're not seeing that. I mean, it's still early. It's yeah, the first I think couple it's still days. Early. It's still early, but you um, haven't seen anything. No, I, I, I mean, don't. You know, I, you know I, I'm, I'm unsure. Yeah. I think this, the, the way that the impeachment has progressed, unfortunately, in the Senate will not allow for new testimony, particularly from um, Ukrainians that have additional information on what's happening. Um, and I, I just feel like we have hit a wall and that a lot of Americans have been forced to their corners um, and organizations like mine are going to have to make sure we're getting out there and doing the hard work at the grassroots level to, 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 to talk to folks about why this president isn't for them. We'll be back for more of my conversation with Justin Myers after this short break. And here's more of my conversation with Justin Myers. Ever since this president, President Trump, uh, uh, took the oath, oath of office, uh, Democrats have been debating uh, whether to focus, you know, over the next few years on bringing back the working class uh, white voters, Trump voters, former Obama voters in the Midwest, so some of the states you're in, or expanding the, uh, the, the, the people of color contingent of the Obama coalition. And I, and I, you can't say that. Uh, I want to ask you which should they be doing, and you can't. You can say both, but the resources are finite. Where, what should the the Democrats be focusing? We on? have to walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm. This is an argument that frustrates me to no end. And why? Is when that? you because when you look at why we lost, right? It wasn't that it, we didn't just lose because people of color didn't turn out. 
we didn't just lose because white working class voters voted for Trump at a higher clip than than Hillary Clinton. We lost because of both both of those, yes. right? Um, you know, African American voters in Detroit simply did not turn out. They were not enthusiastic. We we didn't communicate with them the the way that we should have mm-hmm. around issues that matter to them, particularly in a city that like Detroit that's so marginalized and going through so much, where people you know, uh, have a reason to not believe in government because government has not served them well. Absolutely. Um, so I, all, all that to say is, yes, we have to work hard at mobilizing black and brown communities, but you can't leave out suburban voters. You can't leave out rural voters. We have to figure out a way to talk to them. And maybe it's not my organization that is going to talk to rural, suburban, and urban voters, but I think that we as progressives who are at truly working in a, a collaborative environment can figure out how to make sure there is some organization speaking to a group that we may have missed in previous cycles. Is there anyone kind of coordinating that on the left? Yes. Yeah. Who, who's yes. like kind of the 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 uh, the, uh, the band leader on that? Yeah, I, I think there's a number of organizations that that help convene. You know, America Votes is certainly a convener of community organizations and organizations, state-centric organizations like mine. Uh, I think there's also organizations like mine who create um, uh, non-traditional tables at the grassroots level with activists, with elected officials, with people um, that don't always have access to those bigger, more traditional tables in some state capital. Um, Yes, folks are certainly banding together and working through how we as a collective are going to defeat this president maintain uh, uh, control of the House and make strides in state legislatures around the country. So I know at this point of the race where there haven't been really any votes counted we're, uh, or cast, we, we're still a couple of weeks away from Iowa. You're not going to want to, your organization not going to pick sides. You're no. going to have to, you will back whoever, whoever the, um, the, the nominee is. But what type of candidate would, uh, would do really well in all these seven battleground states? What, if you had to, you know, Put together your bionic man or woman. Or I was going to say Frankenstein. That's probably not a, a complimentary thing. <laughs> Frankenstein candidate. <laughs> no, no, that's probably not a good one. Uh, so, a candidate. Who would? How? What would that candidate look like? So, there are many qualities that I think um, an ideal candidate would have, but I'm going to focus on one um, because I think this is something that politicians often miss. I think campaign managers often miss this as well. This is something that any good organizer knows they have to do. The ability to listen, right? The ability to listen and actually craft a campaign and your campaign message around what what people are telling you is at the top of their mind. What issue actually matters to them, right? Um, whether it's healthcare cost, whether it's childcare, whether it's creating an economy that works for everyone. A good politician is one that is going to go into these communities and actually sit down and listen to people. That's how you get people more engaged. That's how you get people to actually believe in this in the in the system again, to mm-hmm. believe in government again. You know, Iowa is fascinating to me because that's the one state where you know you will Iowa and New Hampshire. I would say is, they're both fascinating because th- those are two states where you can have a conversation with people in the streets that have actually probably spoken to um, you know two to three of the actual presidential candidates. That's astounding, right? I, yeah. And and I'm willing to bet that because of that, you probably have higher participation rates in both of those states. 
I that should not be germane to only to, to those two states only. We need for those candidates to do the same thing in your Detroit's, uh, in your in your Philadelphia's, uh, in your Fox Valley, Wisconsin, uh, where, wherever they need to go to actually communicate and pick up votes and listen is where they need to be. And it may not be them. They also have large teams. They have organizers on the ground. They should be utilizing those folks to also make sure that they're communicating with, 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 with voters and community members to figure out what that message will be that will actually motivate them to turn out. So I know you weren't with For a Future back in 2016, but you have, you've certainly studied uh, what happened and yeah. what went wrong. What did you learn from 2016 that you're trying to change? I'll give you one good example from our um, our home state of Pennsylvania. And this horrified me. Um, when I came on board for our future, one of the first trips I made was to Pennsylvania to talk to people about what 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 we were going to do to move moving forward to make sure that Governor Wolf would win in 2018 and and um, hopefully flip some state ledge seats as well as pick up some congressional seats. And they showed me a heat map of where we where organizations were speaking to voters and organizing. Northeastern Pennsylvania, which is Scranton region, mm -hmm. and then southwestern Pennsylvania, your home region, yes. uh, Allegheny County, Pittsburgh, were bare. Meaning, really, yes. Meaning that we barely had any real contact with voters there, whether it was in the hard side or soft side. There wasn't large communication at scale the way that it should have been. Wow. And what happened as a result? Those are the two corners where you had a ton of Obama Trump voters. Mm. So what we did in 2018 is that we committed to making sure that those two corners wouldn't be bare. So when we knocked our first door in February, it was in those two corners of the state. And we were doing it in an effort to find now the Obama Trump Wolf voter. And we did it around Governor Wolf's education plan. And because we did that early communication with folks, because we were able to talk about Governor Wolf's education plan and use that as a jumping off point as to why people should support him, we saw early that Governor Wolf was going to be just fine. And that allowed us to focus on down ballot and focus on state ledge seats. And we flipped a number of state ledge seats and a number of congressional seats because of that. So all that to say, I think you oftentimes learn more when you lose, unfortunately. I, I, I wish we didn't have to do that with this president because <laughs> I think he's just uh, tearing up our country. But I do think that we now know that we have to work in a more collaborative environment. We can't work in silos and we have to figure out how we can not only scale, but make sure that we are reaching all the communities in every state that we need to, 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 to reach. And not just speak to that individual or that family or that community once, but have continuous conversations with them about issues that matter to them and then try to engage them around the election as well. Um, a couple of days before we're recording this, uh, news broke that Hillary Clinton said in an upcoming documentary that uh, Bernie Sanders, some not too kind words about Bernie Sanders. She said he had been in Congress for years, but, quote, nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him. He got nothing done, end quote. And uh, asked if uh, she would work, you know, uh, work for him if he were the nominee. She was like noncommittal. Now, she's walked that back a little bit. She has bit, walked that uh, back. A little bit. Yes. Um but what's the, what's the impact of something like this at the at this stage of the game? A couple of weeks before Iowa votes, uh, Sanders uh, Sanders moving up in the polls a little bit. What's 
but also it just reopens a lot of stuff that's that's I always mean, there. What's what's the impact of that for someone who's doing the work that you're doing? Yeah, I, I would say it's far beyond me to, to tell Sec- Secretary Clinton what she can and cannot say. Um, but what, no, what, like, what, what, come what, what, on, what, what, no, no, it is, <laughs> it is. But what I will say is that um, I, it's we have to figure out once this primary is done how we as how we as progressives can heal and come back together, mm. um, which I'm confident we will do. Um, you know, we all have a common enemy um, in the White House. And while I think that comment is not helpful, I think that the larger progressive movement now sees what it, what it is like to have this, this gentleman in the White House, gentleman for lack of a better, better word, uh, in the White House um, and what he is doing to our country. And I think that we understand that we can't let arguments um, or disagreements, policy differences, um, uh, take us away from what our job is at the end of the day, which is to defeat this president um, and to restore our democracy, um, our democracy that works for everyone. So you're, you, do you think that having that common enemy will go a long way towards yes. not that we won't see the splits in the Democratic Party that we did uh, three, four yes. years ago? I, I, I definitely think that will be the case. It's going to be contentious up until the nomination. And we should all recognize that. Mm. These are, um, they all have very passionate supporters who believe in their policies and they want their person to win. I certainly understand that. But from what I'm seeing in D.C., what I'm seeing, even when I go to states, when I, when I, even when I speak to organizations, progressive organizations that have actually endorsed mm-hmm. in this race, they still say, yes, we have endorsed Bernie. Yes, we have endorsed uh, Elizabeth Warren. But if they are not the nominee, we are still going to support whomever emerges out of this primary. And, and I'm talking about like the Working Families Party. I'm talking about Community Change Action, a whole bunch of different organizations that are very passionate about who they are supporting. But at the end of the day, from what they are saying, and also just from our planning efforts, I can tell, we are going to work as a collaborative effort. And one more, do you, um, we've seen the last couple of debates, uh, the last one in particular, all white candidates, three of them in their 70s, do you have any concerns that this is going to depress turnout from uh, communities of color or uh, young voters? Yes, I do. And I think that we should all be aware of that. I, I, I'm, I get worried when uh, our debate stage looks more like a Republican debate instead of uh, a, a Democratic debate. Um, <laughs> Actually, you know, it looks worse. <laughs> the last, the, I, I the Republicans were kind of diverse and, last and, time. And, yeah. and, at least they had Rubio. You're right. I am very worried about that. I think that whoever emerges um, with the nomination needs to make sure they have a plan on how they are going to engage um, and ultimately activate uh, people of color. And I think that organizations like mine in particular, who are well-suited to do this, are going to be focused on that regardless of who the nominee is. And again, I, I, I I am... I think that Obama is a once in a lifetime president. I think that he had the ability to motivate people in a way that I may never see again. Mm. Um, so we can't we can't look for another Obama. So the we can't. Way, we should should we give up on the idea of the Obama coalition and, and wait for a Warren coalition or a Sanders or a Biden no, or something like that? No, or, you definitely don't. I think I think the coalition is there. I think mm-hmm. that coalition came together and helped give Nancy Pelosi the the speaker gavel back, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the coalition is there. What I'm saying is that the enthusiasm that President Obama created 
around his candidacy, we can't rely upon that to win this coming November. What we can rely upon is sound organizing mm-hmm. around issues that people care about and using those issues to create the enthusiasm that we need to defeat this president. So this is going to be like a, a grind it out. Yes. A grind it out game. This, this is, is going to be, be a long year. Long year. This <laughs> it's is going to be, be not going to be, out. you know, soaring stadium filling events like Obama. Can, I, I was talking to someone the other day at this, not at this point of the race, but within a month or so, he was filling up arenas. You're right. he, was, he was getting massive crowds. You're right. You're right. I don't see anyone in this crowd doing that. I'm unsure. I think time will tell. Yeah. But also, let's talk about the the, the large, massive um, crowds that are attending all of these marches. That activism is there, but we have to translate that activism into people actually going to vote. Mm. And that's not always easy. Yeah. Mr. Mars, thank you so much for being no here. I, it's, even despite the fact you're from Philly, and <laughs> we won't even get into the gritty controversy. <laughs> oh, God, please. No, we, no. No, I, I spared you on that <laughs> no, one. Please, we'll let you, let, let you go without having to comment on gritty. We'll just let that be out there. <laughs> Thanks so much. No problem. Thank you, Joe. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Justin for coming into San Francisco to be on the podcast. I'd like to thank the king, King Kaufman, and the crate one, Karen Creighton, for producing today's episode. And remember, whether you like kielbasa or cheesesteak, it's all political. It's all political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.